Hello, and welcome to episode 31 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. I know it's been a while since the last episode, but we've all been celebrating lots of end-of-the-year holidays, and whichever ones you did or didn't celebrate, I want to wish all of our listeners a happy, healthy, prosperous, and productive 2022. We're going to shift our attention now to the northernmost parts of Europe. And I'm going to have to start with even more definitions than usual, because when American schools essentially stopped teaching geography 50 years ago, most Americans lost any sense of what's what in the far north of Europe. So first of all, we mistakenly refer to it as Scandinavia. In fact, the Scandinavian peninsula is a peninsula shared by only two countries, Norway and Sweden. A slightly wider region is correctly referred to as Scandinavia because it would include Denmark and also Iceland. Now, what actually makes a Scandinavian country Scandinavian is that they share very similar languages, which are from the Germanic language family. They're definitely not German. But Swedes, Norwegians, and Danes can totally understand each other and don't need an interpretation or a translation. There are occasionally different words. Uh, I don't even remember, but in Swedish and Danish, for example, each language uses the same word, in one case for lunch, in the other case for breakfast. But you can easily make allowances for that, the same way that people in the former Yugoslavia could all understand Serbo-Croatian, even if their native language was something else. So Icelandic, because Iceland is so far away, and there was little contact between Iceland and the rest of Scandinavia for a long time, is a little bit more difficult to understand. But it's still definitely a Scandinavian language with similar social and political structures, similar religion, cultural identity, etc., etc. What is not part of Scandinavia, and which causes great offense if you make this mistake while you're there, is Finland. And that is largely for linguistic reasons. Even though Finland is way up north, it has a completely different language that belongs to the Finno-Ugric group of languages, which includes Estonian and Hungarian, and has its origins somewhere in East Asia. Basically, this group of languages was brought to Northern Europe and Central Europe, in the case of Hungary, by the Huns when they came in the 4th or 5th centuries of the Common Era. But that's totally different from Scandinavia. So the proper term for all these northern countries that we're going to be talking about for the next several sessions is the Nordic countries or the Nordics. There are Nordic councils. There's all kinds of cooperative things about the Baltic, about the North Sea. These countries are, by and large, Protestant. And they do have a lot in common, but they're also significantly different from each other in many important ways. The other fairly common misconception about Norway in particular is that it is essentially a north-south country. And I always thought that was the case until I attended an international conference in the far northeast of Norway at a town called Kirkenes, which is very near the land border shared by Norway and the Russian Federation. Now, a couple comments on this. 
because this conference led to some important discoveries for me that I want to share with you. This town of Kirkenes is so far north that in the winter, it basically has no daylight. And in the summer, it basically has no night. And it is much closer to the Russian port of Murmansk than it is to any major Norwegian city. It was a very important place during World War II because most of the townspeople hid in tunnels that were part of the salt mines there and engaged in active resistance, sabotage of German submarines, etc., etc. Kirkenes, to put it mildly, was a major thorn in the German side. When I attended an international conference there, it was just a couple of weeks after 9-11, and airports were empty, people were afraid to travel. It was a bit odd to go through an airport like Denver or Dulles International and see almost no other people. The airports were like ghost towns. And when I finally got to Kirkenes, which involved travel from the States to Frankfurt to Oslo, then to a major city in northwestern Norway called Trondheim, and finally a little puddle jumper that was a prop jet that made three or four stops before getting to Kirkenes. I discovered by looking at a map that I was further east than Istanbul. Now, Oslo is obviously much west of Istanbul, and I realized that much of my travel, particularly the last section from Trondheim to Kirkenes, had been northeast, but mostly east. And I then went back and looked at a globe, and I realized that Norway is very much an east-west country as well as a north-south country. And by virtue of having this land border with the Russian Federation, Norway was once in a very special group of countries, of which there were only two. They were NATO members who had land borders with the former Soviet Union, and they were called flank countries. And those two were Turkey and Norway. Well, Turkey no longer has a land border with the Russian Federation. It has land borders instead with Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia. Norway still does have a land border with the Russian Federation, and it is often a very tense place. So when I attended this conference in Kirkenes, uh, it was largely thanks to a friend working at the U.S. Embassy in Oslo that I had an opportunity to do a little bit of traveling within Norway and make some very interesting discoveries. Believe it or not, sometimes the U.S. government spends money wisely, and if there's a U.S. official, or in this case, a former U.S. official, traveling at some international conference and in some distant country that doesn't get a lot of American visitors, like Norway, they often ask that person to, on a volunteer basis, but expenses at least are reimbursed, to speak at other events, to meet with newspapers, university students, whatever. It's the public affairs office of the U.S. Embassy that forms a program around somebody's willingness to spend a day or two extra in a country. So my embassy escort officer, Eric, who was of Norwegian ancestry himself, took me on a boat over the North Cape when we left Kirkenes after this conference. And we finally got off this boat at a town called Tromsø, which is in the far northwest of Norway. And it has the northernmost university in the world where I addressed a political science class. And I met with some journalists and a few other things. But then Eric and I had some spare time to wander around Tromsø, which is this little place hundreds of miles north of the Arctic Circle. And 
You can't imagine my shock when I discovered that in the middle of town, in the main square, there was a monument to the Jews of Tromsø who had been deported during the Holocaust. The wildly unexpected discovery of this monument in a place so small and so remote rekindled a long-standing interest I had had in the history of the Jews of Norway. And also, as is the case everywhere else, to understand Jewish history, you need to understand the general history of the country. So let me give you some basics about Norwegian history, and then we'll return to this amazing presence of Jews so far north in such a small and remote place as Tromsø. So at the very end of the 700s, Norwegian Vikings started expanding across the seas to the British Isles and later to Iceland and Greenland. The Viking Age saw the unification of Norway and also the Christianization of Norway, which took place at the very end of the 10th century and then with increasing rapidity in the 11th century. The town of Trondheim, which I mentioned before, on the west coast, south of Tromsø, but very far north of Bergen, was then known as Nidaros, and it became an archdiocese in the Roman Catholic Church. Population grew quickly, and here it's important to note these numbers. In 1349, Oslo had a total of 3,000 people. Bergen on the west coast was more than twice as big, at 7,000. And Trondheim itself, which today one thinks of as a relatively small place, still had 4,000 people, so it was bigger than Oslo. And for many years, what is now called Trondheim, but was then called Nidaros, served as the capital of Norway. The Norwegians discovered Iceland, which was then uninhabited, very late in the 9th century. And within 40 years, all of Iceland had been divided among 400 Norse chieftains. Hakon the Good assumed the crown in the year 930 and established two quasi-parliaments called Tings, which were fora where the king met with freemen to make collective decisions for the good of the nation. Then, led by Eric the Red, a Norwegian-born man, a group of Icelanders settled Greenland in the 980s. Eric's son, Leif Eriksson, came across Newfoundland around the year 1000, naming it Vinland. But unlike Greenland, no permanent settlement was established there. Olaf Haraldsson, one of Norway's greatest early kings, starting in 1015, made these assemblies pass church laws, build churches, and create a hierarchy of priests, bishops, etc. The church elevated him to sainthood for his efforts, and Nidaros, which is today called Trondheim, became the Christian center of Norway and the greatest pilgrimage site in all of northern Europe. It was the equivalent of El Camino de San Juan in the Iberian Peninsula. So in 1265, the Kingdom of Norway had reached its greatest territorial extent, ruling all of Greenland and Iceland, many of the islands around Scotland, the Orkneys, the Hebrides, the Faroe Islands, etc., etc., all of what is today Norway, major chunks of what is today Sweden, and the far north of what is today Finland and the Russian Federation. This didn't last very long. The country was rarely at peace, and its independence was always at risk. In 1349, the Black Death reached Norway, 
and within a year killed more than a third of the population. The Hanseatic League took control of Norwegian trade in the 14th century and established a trading center in Bergen, which eventually became a state within a state. In 1380, Olaf Hawkinson inherited both the Norwegian and the Danish thrones, creating a union between the two countries. Not very much later, in 1397, under Margaret I, the Kalmar Union was created between the three Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. This union did not work to Norway's advantage. Margaret pursued a centralizing policy which inevitably favored Denmark because it had a greater population than Norway and Sweden combined. And one of the things you need to know about these Nordic states is that at one point or another, each ruled over major parts of the territory of another. Sweden controlled Norway, Sweden controlled Finland, Denmark controlled everything. Norway had passed its peak already in the the Dark Ages, really, and it slipped ever more into the background. It was part of a union with Denmark for hundreds of years, but it was very much the junior partner, and slowly its population increased from 150,000 in 1500 to 900,000 in 1800. This union between Denmark and Norway entered the Napoleonic Wars on the side of France, and of course, that turned out to be the losing side. So a treaty signed in 1814 gave Norway to the King of Sweden. So its dependence on Denmark ended, but it was now dependent on Sweden for most of the 19th century. Norway finally saw true independence only in 1905. The first known settlement of Jews in Norway was based on a royal dispensation granted to the Spanish and Portuguese Jews who had been expelled from Spain in 1492 and from Portugal in 1497. Some of these Jews were given special dispensation to enter Norway, but it was always a dispensation that could be canceled or withdrawn or further restricted. Particularly while Norway was part of the Danish kingdom from 1536 to 1814, Denmark introduced a number of religious restrictions to uphold the Protestant Reformation and ordered that all foreigners had to affirm their commitment to 25 articles of faith central to Lutheranism on pain of deportation, forfeiture of all property, and death. Occasionally, special dispensations were given to individual Jews or Jewish families for extraordinary purposes. But by and large, Jewish life was restricted to, first of all, Sephardic Jews, and second of all, very few in all the territory that is now Norway for many centuries. Finally, Some limited rights were extended also to Ashkenazic Jews in the 17th century, but these privileges were rescinded very quickly. And this overall ban persisted until 1851. The European Enlightenment led to a moderate easing of restrictions for Jews in Denmark and Norway, especially in Denmark's southern areas and cities. But overall, life was never easy for Jews in Norway. And there's a particular ban on kosher slaughtering. In the name of animal rights, it is still against the law to slaughter meat in Norway in accordance with Jewish tradition. 
it is not yet against the law to import meat that is slaughtered this way in other countries, but there was recently a bill presented to the Norwegian parliament suggesting that even imported kosher meat should be banned. So what is the situation like for Jews in Norway today? Well, first of all, the numbers are not great altogether. There's somewhere between one and 2,000 Jews in the entire country, most of whom are based in Oslo. There are two functioning synagogues in Norway, one in Oslo and one in Trondheim. The one in Trondheim, until a synagogue opened in Fairbanks, Alaska, long after Alaskan statehood, was the northernmost synagogue in the world. And yet there was this tiny Jewish community up in Tromsø where at least three brothers from an Orthodox family traveled hundreds of miles south to the Trondheim synagogue in order to celebrate their bar mitzvahs. The Oslo synagogue actually, even though the community is small, runs a full cradle-to-grave range of services, including a kindergarten, a cheder, an old folks' home, all kinds of things. There's also a, a Jewish museum in Oslo, and since 2004, there has been a Chabad presence as well. Other Jewish organizations in Norway include B'nai B'rith, Vitzo, B'nai Akiva, Karen Kayemet, a kosher meals on wheels, etc., etc. Socially, Jews are now well integrated into Norwegian society, and there are a lot of prominent figures, including politicians, doctors, musicians, writers, actors, singers, etc., etc. When I worked for the World Union of Jewish Students in the late 1970s, I did go to Oslo at least once to meet with the Norwegian Union of Jewish Students, which was not a huge group of people, but I noticed that they were very prosperous, seemed very well integrated, very much at home, and all completely fluent in English. The other thing I noticed, it was the first time I'd been in a Nordic country where pretty much everybody in a house has their own sauna, and even people who live in apartment buildings, there's usually a communal sauna in the basement of the apartment building. So... There was no shortage of saunas in which to warm up during the long, cold winters. So although numerically the Jewish community of Norway was never that important or earth-shattering, I always found the Jewish community of Norway to be a real source of inspiration because even in the most difficult circumstances imaginable, and even in remote areas in the far north where winter never seems to end, Jews managed to thrive over centuries in spite of bans against their presence and lots of restrictions on their activities and all that, they carved out a niche for themselves, they succeeded, they created a culture and a community, and it is still there. And I think it's an amazing tribute to many qualities of the Jewish people that the Norwegian Jewish community even exists Thanks for your attention, and I look forward to moving on to another Nordic country during our next session.